On the morning of August 9th, 1945, air raid sirens rang out in the Japanese city of Nagasaki. However, a short time later, the sirens rang out again, indicating there was no danger, and people began to climb out of their shelters to carry on about their daily business. Japanese spotters had only identified two United States Army Air Force B-29 bombers, and they had previously flown to the city of Kokura without dropping any weapons, so Japanese authorities assumed it was merely a reconnaissance mission. They couldn't have known what was coming for them, just as the people of Kokura couldn't have known they had been spared an awful fate that morning thanks to something as simple as clouds obscuring their city. At 1101 hours, a single bomb was dropped into the city's industrial area. The bomb detonated with an equivalent force of 22,000 sticks of TNT, which resulted in a blast so bright it was seen by observers over 100 miles away. The fireball generated temperatures in excess of 3,900 degrees centigrade and generated winds of up to 600 miles per hour that added to the destruction. Exact figures are unclear, but at least 129,000 people were either killed on the day or would die in the weeks and years that followed. Six days after the attack, Japan surrendered to the Allies, bringing a close to the most destructive conflict in recorded history that ended within the first two, and so far only two, nuclear attacks in history. It was the Second World War. In this, the first of a two-part special, we are going to examine some of the key elements and incidents in what is probably the single most influential conflict in the course of human history. Welcome to Wars of the World. Given the complex nature of history, especially concerning an event of such scale as the Second World War, it is difficult to track down one single event that sparked the conflict, for ultimately it was a series of events that conspired together to eventually light the flame of war. However, one factor that certainly had a significant part to play was that of fascism and similar ultra-nationalist ideologies that emerged in the 1920s and 30s often fueled by the consequences of the First World War. In many ways, the fascist boom of this period can be considered a holdover from the old imperial ways of kings, queens, and emperors, for the followers of such ideology believed in the concept of destiny, racial superiority, and having a place within a hierarchy, which more often than not led up to one supreme leader guiding them to what they saw as that destiny of greatness. The three main players, whom history labels as the main instigators of the war, Germany, Italy, and Japan, all shared this common world view, even when their own strictest interpretations of the view clashed with those of their fascist allies. Additionally, they all shared one other opinion, and that was that there were those who stood in their way of attaining their destiny, and that these individuals must be destroyed. Of these three world powers, Japan was already on the path to ultra-nationalism by the end of the First World War. Although allied to America, Britain, and France, they garnered little respect from the old imperial powers, who appeared to stand in their way of achieving dominance over Asia, either militarily or through treaties forced upon them by the West, which greatly favored London and Washington. Thus, much of Japan's rearmament program, and in particular research into chemical and biological weapons, was carried out in secret, at least initially, spurred on by a culture that was increasingly militaristic in nature, inspired by the old ways of the Japanese samurai and the way of the warrior. Similarly, Italy, too, was undergoing something of an ideological revolution, hoping to recapture past glory and establish a new international identity as a leading power. In 1922, Mussolini and his National Fascist Party rose to power in Italy, 
Very soon, he began reshaping the democratic political landscape of the country into a dictatorship centered around himself. Mussolini believed his new Italy's destiny was to birth a new Roman Empire, and he began a massive buildup of armed forces. A difficult task, given that Italy's economy was still largely centered around agriculture, rather than the manufacturing base he needed for such grand plans. With both nations now ready to undertake their ambitions, conflict was inevitable. History records that the Second World War began in 1939, however some historians now argue that it began in 1931, with the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in China in an effort to seize vital resources. The Japanese deliberately detonated a bomb on a Chinese railway line used by Japanese citizens in order to blame it on Chinese dissidents. This was then used as a pretext to invade the country, and Japan would occupy the land there until it was liberated by the Allies in 1945, waging a near ceaseless war with the Chinese government all the while. Japanese occupation of Chinese territory was extraordinarily harsh. Rape and murder were not only widespread, but often encouraged by the Japanese leadership as a form of recreation for the troops. In Japanese society, surrender was unthinkable, for it would dishonor one's family, and they applied this code upon the Chinese as well. Chinese prisoners who did not fight to the death were treated brutally, either being murdered on the spot or worked to death, while a few particularly unlucky victims might find themselves sent to one of Japan's medical research facilities that had been built in occupied China. Situated at Pingfan in northeast China and designated Unit 731, Thousands of Chinese prisoners were used in nightmarish medical experiments to develop biological and chemical weapons, as well as carry out experimental surgeries, often without anesthesia, for fear of corrupting the data, and all for the good of the empire. Mussolini, too, was not afraid to use his forces to build his empire, most notably when he sent troops into Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia, in 1935, to start the construction of his new Roman Empire in Africa. If a case can be made for Manchuria being considered the first battlefront of World War II, then Abyssinia could be the second. Of course, it was the third fascist country to emerge that would become the premier player in this story. That of Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler. Hitler was himself of Austrian birth, but had fought in the German army during the First World War. When the war ended with Germany's humiliation, Hitler felt especially bitter, and like many in Europe, he feared communism spreading beyond the borders of post-revolutionary Russia. In 1919, a year after the end of the war, he joined a new and little-known political group called the German Workers' Party, and used his great ability as a speaker to stir up crowds and gain support. A year later, the party was renamed the National Socialist German Workers' Party, more commonly known by its English abbreviation, Nazi. In 1921, Hitler rose to become the leader of the party, and again, using his magnetic personality, he continued to garner more and more support, until in 1923, the Nazis were confident enough to attempt a coup in Munich and seize power. Known as the Beer Hall Putsch, the effort failed, and Hitler was arrested before being put on trial, but this only furthered the Nazi cause. Hitler used the trial to gain even more supporters, and despite spending a year in prison, in which he wrote his autobiography, Mein Kampf, the Nazis struggled to establish themselves in German politics. Mein Kampf not only outlined Hitler's own story, but it also set about establishing his vision for the future of the German people, and how he believed subversive groups were holding them back from achieving their destiny through measures such as the Treaty of Versailles, which outlined Germany's surrender terms. He specifically identified Jews and communists as being the leaders of this great international conspiracy to keep the German people down after the war, highlighting the harsh conditions imposed on the country by the victorious allies. The book effectively became the Nazi Bible. By 1933, the Nazi party had secured enough political support that Hitler legally became Chancellor of Germany. He quickly began passing legislation that would transform Germany into Nazi Germany, and the swastika would symbolize this reinvigorated country. 
The persecution of Jews, gypsies, and political opponents soon became government policy, as Hitler began preparing Nazi Germany to attain what he saw as its destiny, centered around the concept of the Aryan race, with him as the undisputed leader, the Führer. As the 1930s drew on, Hitler's Nazi party became firmly embedded, not just in German politics, but German society. The German people had much to thank the Nazi party for, since they had pulled the country out of the despair of defeat and reinvigorated it, promising that Germany would soon be attaining its destiny of becoming a great power again. Hitler's appeal and influence was not lost on foreign observers, many of whom admired him and even began to sympathize with the treatment of Germany after the war. Hitler would even become Time Magazine's Man of the Year. This played perfectly into Hitler's hand, as he began making notions of regaining lost territory in the east and west of the country. The first test of how the Allied powers of Britain and France would respond to his new Germany came in 1935, when Hitler introduced military conscription which saw the German armed forces swell many times beyond the number permitted by the Treaty of Versailles. However, the Allies did nothing. Encouraged by this, he then ordered his troops into the Rhineland in 1936. The Rhineland had been demilitarized in 1925 in order to create a safety zone for France, who, along with Belgium, had occupied it for a time due to Germany's inability to pay war reparations. Hitler had given secret orders to his men that should they encounter French military resistance, they were to retreat, because Germany was still in no condition to fight a war. But despite protests from France at the League of Nations, the wider world did nothing. Hitler also joined Mussolini in sending troops to fight for the nationalists in the Spanish Civil War, giving his forces vital combat experience. In 1937, British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin stood down and was succeeded by Neville Chamberlain. Meanwhile, Germany continued to rearm and now set their sights on reclaiming the German Sudetenland, which had been absorbed into Czechoslovakia after the war. At the same time, Hitler looked to his own birth country of Austria to become a part of his new Germany, although this was again forbidden by the Versailles Treaty. Austria and Germany had long had an almost symbiotic relationship and both countries' peoples viewed the other as cousins. Austria even had its own Nazi party, and in January of 1938, they attempted their own putsch, much like Hitler had tried back in 1923. The putsch failed, and many leading Austrian Nazis were imprisoned. Hitler's propaganda machine went to work, creating a false impression that Austrians were rising up in support of their imprisoned Nazis. And so on March 12, 1938, German troops entered Austrian territory on the pretense of restoring order. Within weeks, the Austrian government was gone, and the country was absorbed into Germany as the province of Ostmark. A vote on joining Germany claimed that 99% of the population supported the move, which was known as the Anschluss. Having secured his home nation under a greater Germany, Hitler declared himself the advocate of all ethnic Germans in Europe, and primarily of those in the Sudetenland. Making clear his intention to absorb the region into Germany, a diplomatic crisis was sparked when, just like in Austria, a Sudetenland Nazi party rose up and began demanding autonomy from Czechoslovakia. The Czech government tried to negotiate with the Sudeten Germans, while a series of meetings were held between Germany, Britain, and France to reach an agreement on the crisis culminating in the Munich Agreement, which effectively gave a free hand to Germany's ambitions. No Czech representative was present. First, Hitler took the Sudetenland, and then in January of 1939, he invaded and captured the rest of Czechoslovakia in his first act of truly open aggression towards a neighbor. The conquest of Czechoslovakia raised concerns with the mighty Soviet Union, which was in the grip of the paranoid Joseph Stalin. Hitler had written in Mein Kampf that having to fight a war on two fronts was one of the reasons that the Kaiser's Germany was defeated, and so having already antagonized London and Paris, he was far more careful with Moscow and began a diplomatic effort with the Soviet Union to keep them out of events in the West. In August 1939, 
the German and Soviet foreign ministers met in Moscow, where the pair effectively divided Eastern Europe up into two, on the promise that neither would interfere with the other in those areas. The Soviet Union had its own interests in Poland and Finland, and so was happy to abide by the agreement, even though Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union were ideological enemies. Despite this period of cooperation, many felt it wouldn't last, but with Stalin at bay, Hitler ordered his troops into Poland on September 1st, 1939. The invasion of Poland was the final straw for Britain and France. There was no justification for the invasion, other than to simply capture territory from a foreign land. And so the Allied powers delivered an ultimatum to Hitler, withdraw his troops or there would be war. The demand was refused, and on September 3rd, Neville Chamberlain told the British people that they were at war with Germany. Some of Germany's more cautious generals had warned Hitler that the country was not yet ready for a second massive European confrontation. Germany's rearmament plans predicted war with Britain and France breaking out in 1945, by which time they would have their own aircraft carrier, large U-boat fleets, and powerful tank forces. The generals, therefore, concocted their Blitzkrieg style of war. Blitzkrieg means lightning war, and called for the widespread use of tanks and aircraft to break through enemy formations, to capture key strategic areas, and divide enemy forces up to make them easier to destroy. Above all, it was intended to achieve a quick victory, rather than a drawn-out war of attrition which Germany could not afford. It was first used in Poland, and the Polish army proved totally inadequate for this new form of warfare. In less than a month, the Polish army was annihilated, and the German army, the Wehrmacht, began consolidating their positions in Western Poland as the Soviet Union invaded the east of the country on September 17th, as had been agreed to by Stalin and Hitler. This was something that was all but ignored by Britain and France, who concentrated on Germany. Poland ceased to exist as a free country on October 6, 1939, and Nazi Germany now shared a land border with the communist Soviet Union. Britain and France's declaration of war on Germany sent shockwaves across Europe that were felt politically, but appeared to do very little else. Belgium, Holland, and Norway joined a chorus of European voices declaring themselves neutral in the fighting, but in fact, there seemed to be very little fighting at all. In terms of helping to defend Poland, Britain and France could do very little, and instead, they prepared for when Hitler would charge west. This was the start of the phony war, a period where both sides seemed to be doing everything they would normally do in war, except all-out warfare. The French mobilized their armed forces and sent them to the border, while Britain created the British Expeditionary Force, or BEF, to be sent across the Channel to support France, mirroring how the country went to war in 1914. At sea, German U-boats and surface raiders did sink unprotected merchant ships, while in the air, British aircraft made attacks on German shipping or conducted leaflet drops over the Ruhr region. During one such leaflet dropping mission on September 9th, a formation of RAF Whitley bombers strayed into Belgian airspace and were attacked by Belgian fighters, which forced one of them to land, but they did lose two aircraft to British defensive fire. However, in the South Atlantic, a drama was about to unfold that would become a naval legend. The German pocket battleship Gaff Spee was attacking British merchant ships, capturing their crews and then sinking them. The crews were then put on the Graf Spee's support ship, the Altmark, for returning to Germany. Three British cruisers met the German ship in battle, and despite being outgunned, managed to inflict enough damage to force the German battleship to put into port for repairs. While there, the British began flooding the local media sources that a huge British armada was assembling to destroy the pocket battleship when it left port. The German captain learned of this, and believing the situation was hopeless, he scuttled his mighty warship. In reality, there was no armada, but the deception meant potentially thousands of sailors' lives were saved. A few weeks later, British special forces raided the Altmark and rescued a number of the captured merchant crews. Everyone knew the phony war couldn't last forever, 
and it would only be a matter of time before Hitler struck west at France. In the meantime, Britain and France decided to embark on a campaign in Norway, at the time a neutral country, but one that along with Sweden helped supply Germany with vital iron ore. The Allies mined Norwegian harbors from where German ships operated, which provoked Hitler to send his forces in on April 9th to secure them. At the same time, Hitler's forces struck at Denmark, taking the country in less than six hours. The battle for Norway would last until June 10th, by which time France and Britain had long retreated, leaving the country to its fate. The disaster in Norway forced Chamberlain to stand down as Prime Minister on May 10th, and after Lord Halifax refused the post, it was offered to Winston Churchill, who, as the first Lord of the Admiralty, was still basking in the success of the Graf Spee operation. Coincidentally, May 10th was also the start of the Battle of France. Churchill was something of a surprise, having more enemies than friends in the establishment, but was a popular figure amongst the people for his bullish charisma, which seemed to embody Britain's spirit of defiance. He would eventually form a new government made up of members from the main political parties, but in doing so, effectively suspended British democracy for the foreseeable future. He told the British people rather bluntly that he had nothing to offer them but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Across the Channel, the French had been preparing for another great war against Germany for over a decade by constructing the Maginot Line, a series of brutally tough fortifications along the border with Germany. It was designed and constructed in the belief that the war would be reminiscent of the static nature of World War I, but it was fundamentally flawed. It only went as far north as the Belgian border, and despite popular belief at the time, it was not a continuous fortification, having several gaps where it was believed that natural obstacles such as forests and hills would provide protection. It also consumed huge amounts of men and resources, leading some to worry the French were putting all their eggs into one basket as far as defense of their nation was concerned. Hitler looked at the situation and immediately saw what had to be done. He was simply going to bypass it entirely by going through Belgium and Holland. Like the Kaiser before him in 1914, he paid little interest to Belgium's or anyone else's declaration of neutrality if it served his purpose. On May 10th, 1940, Germany struck west quickly overrunning Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, and turning in towards the heart of France. All the Maginot Line had achieved was to swell the fighting into neighboring countries and effectively hand even more of Europe to Hitler. The Germans flooded France, making good use of their tank and air forces, despite being outnumbered on paper. Indeed, Germany's tank forces were in many ways technologically inferior to the Allies in 1940 but the Germans had far superior tactics. In the air, the British and French found themselves heavily outclassed by the vaunted German Messerschmitt Bf 109 fighter and sustained heavy losses, but it would be another German plane that would gain notoriety during the battle for France. The Ju-87 Stuka was a famed dive bomber that could attack tanks and bridges with extraordinary accuracy and potency, striking terror into ground units. Later, the aircraft would be fitted with a siren in its wings that would create a terrifying howl when it entered a dive to further frighten troops, making it as much a psychological weapon as a bomber. To compound problems for the Allies, the quick German success and the failure of the Maginot Line to keep Hitler's forces at bay saw French morale in particular suffer terribly. Despite spirited resistance by the French army and the British expeditionary force, a sense of defeatism quickly overwhelmed them. It soon became apparent that France would fall, and so, in Britain, plans were drawn to evacuate the BEF back to the mainland so they could defend Britain from what now seemed like an inevitable invasion. Dubbed Operation Dynamo, a huge armada of fishing boats, pleasure craft, and even rowboats were assembled on the southeast coast of England to make the trip across the channel to Dunkirk, where the remnants of the BEF and elements of the surviving French and Belgian armies were assembling. In this small pocket of French coastline, the British and French troops at Dunkirk were surrounded by German troops and waited for either rescue, capture, or death. 
Hitler wanted to send in his troops to wipe them out once and for all, but the head of the German Luftwaffe, Hermann Goering, convinced him that his air force, which had so far proved almost unstoppable, could smash them on the beaches with fewer losses to German forces. Goering hoped that by doing this, he would gain favor with Hitler over some of his rivals within the Nazi high command. The evacuation began on May 27, 1940, with the fleet of little boats bearing down on the beaches to take men out to awaiting British warships. The German Luftwaffe launched a fierce aerial bombardment and inflicted painful losses on the British. However, for the first time in the war, the superiority of the Luftwaffe was finally challenged, since Dunkirk was in range of the fighters flying from Britain itself. The sea and sky thus became a brutal killing field until the evacuation ended nearly a week later on June 4th, by which time a staggering 338,000 men had been rescued. The evacuation was seen as a victory for Britain, but those in the offices of power knew the truth. The defeat in France had not only cost the relatively small British army 68,000 men, but had cost them huge amounts of equipment, such as artillery, tanks, and other assorted vehicles that would be vital in repelling a German invasion. Churchill warned against the optimistic mood after Dunkirk, noting that wars were not won by evacuations. In the wake of the success of the evacuation, a tragedy would occur that has largely been glossed over by history when the British ocean liner, the RMS Lancastria, attempted to escape the French port of Saint-Nazaire. The line was taking part in Operation Ariel, which aimed to evacuate British nationals from France, when at 10 minutes to 4 on June 17th, it was bombed by German aircraft. Exact numbers of how many men, women, and children were on board is unknown, because in the chaos of the evacuation, people were crammed into every available space. But it is estimated that between 3,000 to 6,000 people were killed, making it the worst maritime disaster in British history. To put this into perspective, the most conservative estimates put the death toll as being twice that of the Titanic. The disaster was quietly covered up for the fear of damaging national morale. On June 10th, 1940, Mussolini waded in on the side of Nazi Germany, declaring war on Britain and France, although Italian forces would only play a token part in the fight for France. On June 25th, 1940, after just 46 days of fighting, Hitler's troops achieved what the Kaiser had failed to do in four years by defeating and occupying France. To add insult to injury for the French, Hitler located the same railway carriage in which the Treaty of Versailles was signed in 1919 and used it to meet with the French to discuss their surrender. France surrendered, but it was not wholly occupied by Germany. Instead, the country was split in two, with Germany occupying the northern half of the country and the western coastline with the remainder in the southeast being ruled by the Vichy French government, who were essentially German puppets and had to live under terms that had similarly been imposed on Germany after the First World War. The French surrender also gave Churchill concerns that France's fleet would be absorbed into Germany's navy and used to try and blockade Britain. In one of his most controversial acts during the war, on July 3rd, he ordered the Royal Navy to demand that French warships surrender to them, and when they refused, the Royal Navy bombarded them with shellfire, killing 1,297 French sailors and sinking or damaging eight ships. With France duly suppressed, Hitler was now concerned with what to do with Britain. It wasn't in his favor to destroy Britain, as he believed that would only hand her empire to the Americans, who were becoming increasingly hostile to him after Poland. Believing Britain was spent after the fall of France, he sued for peace, but Churchill refused, even though he knew Britain's chances of repelling a full German invasion in 1940 were slim at best. Hitler therefore ordered his generals to draw up plans for Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of Britain. At the same time, Germany, along with Mussolini's Italy, met with representatives of Japan to begin negotiations for an alliance that was meant to counter the United States. This ultimately culminated in the Tripartite Pact, signed on September 27, 1940, and saw the birth of what history now remembers as the Axis forces, following a comment made previously by Mussolini 
in which he said the world would spin on the axis between Berlin and Rome, and now, of course, Tokyo. Unlike Germany's previous military endeavors, the invasion of Britain had a serious obstacle in the English Channel. Hitler's military leadership agreed that it would only be possible to cross the Channel in the summer, since the weather during the autumn and winter months would be too poor to cross safely. First, however, he would have to destroy Britain's Royal Air Force, otherwise his troops would be sitting ducks to the British as they sat in their invasion barges during the crossing. As Germany made their invasion preparations, Churchill readied the country to do what had to be done to defend themselves. Declassified documents show just how far he was prepared to go to repel Hitler's forces should they land in Britain. He ordered that British forces were to use chemical weapons at any German landing zone in the country, frequently saying that it's our country and we can do what we want to defend it. He had previously wanted to use gas in the Battle of France, dropped from British bombers on targets in Germany, but his senior military officers warned him that Germany at that time could deliver far greater levels of gas onto British targets, and so an unspoken agreement was made by both sides that they would only use gas if the other did. On July 10th, 1940, the German Luftwaffe began their offensive to destroy the RAF. It was the start of the Battle of Britain, and German confidence was still high after their swift defeat of Poland and Western Europe. However, unlike much of the fighting in Europe, the Luftwaffe now had to contend with a well-organized and highly integrated air defense network centered around the RAF's fighter command, led by Sir Hugh Dowding. They were equipped with two of the best fighter aircraft in the world at that time, namely the Hawker Hurricane and the more advanced Supermarine Spitfire. Fighter Command's ranks also swelled with an influx of British Commonwealth, French, Dutch, Polish, and even American pilots volunteering to fight, many of whom already had combat experience during the battles for their own countries. Over the coming weeks, the RAF would rise to face the overwhelming German aircraft, but they were suffering for it as the Luftwaffe blasted their airfields in an effort to destroy their support infrastructure. On August 13th, 1940, so many German aircraft attacked Britain that Churchill was warned that the invasion was finally underway, but despite a great deal of damage being done, the RAF was holding on against the Germans, who were occasionally joined by contingents of Italian aircraft. By September, Fighter Command was at its weakest point in terms of men and machines, but then, with the country's industry now fully geared up for war, British fighter production ramped up to the point where it outstripped losses, and newly trained pilots began to join the fight. However, the damage to the airfields was proving more problematic. Hitler, on the other hand, was unaware that the RAF was growing once again in strength, and was told by Goering that it was barely able to put any aircraft into the air, something that would become true if pressure on the British airfields wasn't lifted. Then, on August 24, 1940, German bombers unintentionally bombed London. Churchill most likely knew this was a mistake, but nevertheless played up the incident to give him an excuse to send his own bombers to Berlin. The attacks on Berlin outraged Hitler, who decided to order his bombers to turn their attention away from the airfields in order to devastate London and other British cities. His belief was that British morale would be so shaken by these terror attacks that the country would collapse, forcing Churchill to surrender, thus making an armed invasion unnecessary. It was among Hitler's greatest mistakes. Essentially freed from attack, Fighter Command rebuilt and reorganized itself, and by the time Hitler realized his mistake, summer was coming to an end. The weather was worsening, RAF Fighter Command was still a potent threat, and the country's defenses had been built up to the point where it was no longer practical to invade. While the Germans had successfully captured the British Channel Islands, Britain herself was spared, and thus, with hindsight, had sowed the seeds for Hitler's ultimate defeat. Just as it had been in the First World War, the outbreak of war in Europe again saw the fighting spill over into the territories that European imperial powers held control of elsewhere around the world. Britain and France held territory across Africa, which Italy's Mussolini eyed jealously, 
and when Italy declared war on Britain and France in support of Germany, it gave him the opportunity to invade those territories from Italian possessions such as Ethiopia, Somaliland, and most significantly Libya, which bordered British Egypt. Egypt was vital to British interests because of the Suez Canal, which linked Britain to its Far East possessions such as Hong Kong and India, as well as the oil-rich Middle East, which both sides desperately needed access to. On September 13, 1940, Italian forces launched an invasion in Egypt. With Britain herself still preparing for an invasion, it was left to the small contingent of British and Commonwealth troops stationed there to defend the large border against the numerically superior Italians. At first, the Italians made good progress, eventually capturing the important airfield at Sidi Barani. However, with Hitler being forced to cancel the invasion of Britain, fresh troops and equipment began to be mobilized for North Africa under the command of Lieutenant General Richard O'Connor. First, however, they would have to make the perilous sea voyage down the North Atlantic and into the Mediterranean, where the Italian fleet was still the dominant force. Heavily outnumbered, the British concocted a daring plan to attack the Italian fleet while it was still moored in port at Taranto, using obsolete fairy swordfish biplane bombers. On the night of November 11th and 12th, 1940, the force of swordfish bombers took off from HMS Illustrious and caught the Italians completely by surprise. The attack inflicted severe damage on a large number of the Italians' capital ships, taking them out of the war for several months in order to be repaired, and thus severely hampering Italy's efforts to disrupt supplies to North Africa. Unfortunately, the British still had to contend with air and submarine attacks. The task of expelling Italian forces from Egypt seemed immense in late 1940, and yet the newly arrived British forces managed to achieve just that. They retook Sidi Barani, and by January 3rd, 1941, were already pushing forward into Libya. In two months, a British force consisting of just two divisions had advanced 500 miles, destroyed 10 Italian divisions, and taken 130,000 prisoners as well as captured over 1,000 tanks and artillery pieces. Operating from Italy, the German Luftwaffe began supporting the Italian operation from the air, but things on the ground continued to go badly for the Italians, with British forces capturing the strategic port of Tobruk on January 22nd. Confident of Italian defeat, Churchill began his plans for helping to defend Greece and the Balklands from a joint German and Italian invasion. However, Germany decided to send two of its own divisions to help shore up Italian forces in North Africa, which would form the nucleus of its Africa Corps, under the command of Erwin Rommel. Rommel was a gifted leader and tactician, who understood tank warfare better than most generals in 1941. The plains of North Africa were ideal for tank combat, and Rommel's influence was almost immediately felt. Rommel attacked on March 24th and pushed east across Libya, back towards Egypt. However, he failed to retake Tobruk and instead laid siege to the British garrison there, which held out for a staggering 240 days, providing a severe thorn in the side of the Axis forces and tying up resources. On April 14th, British and Commonwealth forces had been pushed back to the border, and the Germans had even captured General O'Connor and his replacement, General Neam, but Rommel's forces were struggling with logistics problems, which Hitler feared the British could take advantage of. Fuel was such a concern for the Germans that they began efforts to steal it from the British rather than destroy British stocks in airstrikes. By May, Rommel was forced to halt his advance while he resupplied his forces. Under General Wavell, the British counterattacked in June, hoping to cut off Rommel's supplies and force him to surrender, but Rommel outmaneuvered them and the attack failed. As the year went on, the British became obsessed with killing Rommel, who earned the nickname Desert Fox, and even sent a commando raid to assassinate him, which ultimately failed. For the next few months, the battle lines fluctuated, but Rommel's logistical problems continued to hold him back and worsened when Hitler began to focus more on other fronts. During this time, British forces also found themselves engaged in another unexpected quarter against Iraq. Formerly a British possession in the Middle East, Iraq gained its independence in 1930, but retained good relations with Britain 
To such an extent, it broke off relations with Germany upon the outbreak of the war. British aircraft and troops were also still stationed in the country to protect British interests, such as its oil reserves in the region. However, in April 1941, the Germans supported a coup against the government, leading to a brief conflict between the new leaders of the country and the British Empire forces. The British forces were ultimately successful, despite promises of Axis support such as German aircraft, which flew in Iraqi markings. With Hitler being forced to call off Operation Sea Lion in 1940, the Germans recognized that their window to invade Britain had closed, and it would now be impractical to attempt another invasion. Britain was becoming Fortress Britain, and so Hitler turned to a medieval method of warfare, the siege. Hitler knew that Britain relied extremely heavily on war supplies, material, and even food coming from her empire and North America. Therefore, he turned to his navy, the Kriegsmarine, and tasked them to cut off this vital supply. The Royal Navy was still the most powerful surface fleet in the world in 1940, and while Germany had advanced warships like the Bismarck, they couldn't hope to meet the Royal Navy in a pitched battle like the Kaiser's fleet had in World War I. Thus, despite runaway successes such as Bismarck sinking the much-loved British battlecruiser HMS Hood on May 24, 1941, Germany's surface fleets were almost a side note in the conflict at sea, particularly as the war went on and Hitler lost interest in them. Therefore, the German Navy reverted to using their U-boats to besiege Britain. The Kaiser's U-boats had proven how vulnerable Britain was to such a weapon, but it seems Britain had learned very little from this during the interwar years. Tactics to combat U-boats had changed very little, and new technologies like an early form of sonar had yet to take prevalence in the fleet, meaning the main method to detect a U-boat was to spot it on the surface recharging its batteries or when using its periscope. Aircraft were seen as ideal platforms for this, but the RAF's coastal command was equipped with types wholly inadequate for the job at the start of the war, lacking the range and weaponry, but also having to rely solely on the aircrew's eyes for detection. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy began organizing merchant ships into convoys in order to provide them protection, and also began taking on trawlers from Britain's fishing fleets and arming them to hunt U-boats. Nevertheless, the U-boats began to inflict painful losses on Britain, while efforts to destroy the U-boats at sea were met with mixed success, as were RAF Bomber Command's efforts to destroy the U-boat yards in France and Norway. Churchill would later admit that the U-boats were the only thing that truly scared him during the war. However, the U-boats needed help in locating the convoys, and so the Luftwaffe used long-range Condor patrol aircraft to organize U-boat attacks. Realizing this, Britain began looking at ways of destroying these aircraft. There weren't enough aircraft carriers in the Royal Navy, during the early years at least, to protect every convoy, and so they came up with a novel solution. Catapult Merchantmen, or CAM ships. These were merchant ships equipped with a catapult to launch a single Hawker Hurricane or Fairy Fulmar fighter to attack the Condors when they were sighted. It was a one-way mission, with there being no way to recover the aircraft, which had to ditch alongside the convoy with the pilots hoping to be picked up by a passing ship, which made it one of the most dangerous jobs of the war. The urgency to combat the U-boats saw the rapid development of technology, particularly in the field of radar. The U-boats had to ride on the surface to charge the batteries that powered them underwater, and this was carried out under the safety of night. However, radar had been used to combat night bomber raids and was now being trialed against U-boats. On December 22, 1941, a U-boat was sunk by a Royal Navy plane on the surface under the cover of darkness. From that point on, U-boats could be attacked at any time, anywhere. The situation was made worse for the U-boats by the addition of new, longer-ranged aircraft equipped with radar, which left fewer and fewer safe places for them to hide. At the same time Mussolini's Italy opened the North African campaign, his troops also opened up another front, this time against Greece. Mussolini felt he was playing second fiddle to Hitler in Europe and wanted to establish himself as an equal. 
he viewed Greece as an easy target and began putting pressure on the country's own fascist-like dictator, Ioannis Metaxas. On August 15, 1940, an Italian submarine sank the Greek warship Ellie. Italian troops finally attacked on October 28, 1940, but like in North Africa, they were beaten back despite the odds seemingly being in their favor. The Italian attack pushed Greece closer to Britain, who were desperate for allies after the fall of Western Europe. This, in turn, made Hitler take an interest in Greece, and he had his general staff start drawing up plans for his own troops to once again come to the aid of the Italians. The problem was that Germany had no land border with Greece, it being blocked by Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. Hitler demanded cooperation from both nations to allow his forces to pass through. Bulgaria agreed, and so too did Yugoslavia, both of whom joined the Axis forces. But public opinion in the latter was strongly anti-German, leading to a coup against the government and the rejection of any alliance. Outraged, Hitler ordered that when his troops invade Greece from Bulgaria on April 6, 1941, they were to concurrently invade Yugoslavia. Despite stiff resistance, Yugoslavia was overrun in just over a week and a half. Two weeks later, the Greeks surrendered, having been overwhelmed by the combined might of the Germans and Italians. British assistance could do little to repel the invaders, and along with Greek forces, they retreated to the island of Crete. Consolidating his position on the Greek mainland, Hitler ordered the invasion of Crete to begin on May 20th, and it was opened with a massive attack by German paratroopers. After nearly two weeks of fierce fighting, the island fell, but while the British and observers in Washington were impressed with the effectiveness of a paratroop invasion launched against them, Hitler was appalled at the cost to his forces, and never again ordered a large-scale airborne invasion. Nazi Germany's army seemed unstoppable by mid-1941, and no one became more convinced of this than Hitler himself, who, after defeating the British on mainland Europe in France and Greece, and with Rommel continuing to push them back in North Africa, decided it was time to achieve his ultimate goal, the destruction of the Soviet Union. Hitler viewed the Soviet Union as a way of not only eradicating communism, but of feeding his thousand-year Reich by providing vast areas of agricultural land and vital resources such as oil and metals. Germany's generals warned the Fuhrer against invading the Soviet Union, however, unless Moscow attacked first. Britain herself remained unconquered, and worse still, was now sending fleets of her bombers into Europe to attack German industry. Also, the job of defeating British and British Commonwealth forces in Africa required the resources Hitler wanted to commit to fighting the Soviet Union. They believed it was better to send those forces to destroy British resistance in Africa and then seize British possessions in the Middle East, which would afford them oil, which would starve Britain of her supplies and eventually help force London to surrender. Hitler was impatient, however. He argued that the German people would not be as supportive for a war on Russia after a few more years of fighting. He also believed the Soviet army was incompetent after its poor showing against Finland in the Winter War of 1939. If he waited, then the Soviet leadership might learn from their mistakes and become a more credible threat. Hitler would say, We have only to kick in the front door, and the whole rotten Russian edifice will come tumbling down. He defied his generals and gave the order to attack the Soviet Union. Dubbed Operation Barbarossa, Germany committed a huge force of troops that included Romanian, Finnish, and Hungarian units, who were by now signed up members of the Axis forces. The attack was launched from occupied Polish territory at 300 hours on Sunday, June 22, 1941, and involved a staggering 3.8 million personnel launched across a 2,900-kilometer front. The German forces were arranged in three key army groups, North, Center, and South. The Soviet army had warnings that the Germans were amassing for an invasion, but Stalin refused to believe it. In the days after the invasion, he retreated into his own mind, being unable to comprehend just what was happening, which left his government, who were terrified to act against him following his brutal purges, unsure what to do. The Soviet army sustained incredible losses in the early days of the war, while the Soviet air force was largely smashed on the ground. 
The aircraft that did get airborne were often obsolete types or their pilots poorly trained, making them easy targets for skilled and experienced German fighters. The Soviet forces also had to contend with anti-communist forces conducting sabotage and intelligence gathering operations for the Germans. The fighting in the East was particularly brutal. Hitler told his forces that a war against the Soviet Union could not be fought along civilized lines, and as such, he promised no German would ever be held accountable for his conduct against the enemy. In a sense, they were given a free hand to rape, plunder, and murder. When Soviet units were overwhelmed, many of them surrendered as their command structure collapsed, and these soldiers were led into captivity, where there was an actual plan in place to starve them to death. Behind the German troops' advance, German death squads began murdering so-called undesirables, such as Jews. The speed of the German advance took everyone by surprise, including the Germans themselves. The vast areas of land Germany's forces took proved a logistical nightmare, and on several occasions they lost the initiative as they waited for supplies of food, fuel, and armaments. The Germans advanced across eastern Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Ukraine, and into Russia itself, proving almost unstoppable. But everyone knew that the biggest obstacle the Germans would have to face was rapidly approaching, the Russian winter. Now that they were allied against Germany, Britain sent aircraft, tanks, and weapons to the Soviet Union to allow Stalin to relocate his industrial base out of the range of German aircraft. Additionally, on August 25th, 1941, both countries launched a joint invasion of Iran to protect Allied supply lines in the region. By December 1941, the snow was setting in, but German troops were on the verge of taking Moscow itself. However, they failed to take the city and their advance ground to a halt. The Soviet Union's leadership, meanwhile, had relocated their major weapons production facilities further east, out of the range of German bombers, which allowed them to build tanks and aircraft unmolested. They were also getting supplies from Britain, thanks to the efforts of the men on the perilous Arctic convoys. The German army leadership knew the truth, even if Hitler remained convinced of Germany's superiority. They had lost their window of opportunity to destroy the Soviet Union quickly. Now, the Soviets were engaged, committed, and far more prepared for the coming war of attrition than Germany was. In Mein Kampf, Hitler had outlined that Germany could not fight a prolonged war on two fronts. Yet, at the end of 1941, he was effectively committed to three. Britain in the West, British Commonwealth in North Africa, and now the Soviet Union in the East. And while the snow fell on German soldiers in Russia, ill-equipped for winter warfare, a world away, in the tropical climate of Hawaii, a fleet of Japanese ships were closing in on the American naval base at Pearl Harbor. Join us next time for the conclusion of this two-part special covering the explosive close to World War II.